Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. Cuddling the Kids People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. The subjects of children and childhood lie very close to my heart. I have four children myself who, over the years, have brought me great brimming buckets full of joy, pain and revelation. Before becoming a writer, I worked with children in the care of the local authority, and recently I have felt more able to face and address the child that I used to be and who still lives in me. Just occasionally I have even managed to coax that worried, skinny little kid with his pudding basin haircut out for an excursion into the world where I try to live as an adult. He's just beginning to trust me. In this passage from Mark's Gospel, we find the disciples doing what they always did most consistently, getting it wrong. Like some fussy committee, they're intent on shooing away the untidy, unimportant element in the crowd so that the Master doesn't waste his time on trivial pursuits. How could they have known that in the eyes of these children Jesus saw some shining memory or reflection of heaven and home? He was indignant. He wanted to cuddle the children and bless them. So he did. I would like to tell you that ever since I was converted at the age of 16, the aspiring disciple in me has been preventing that skinny kid I mentioned earlier from coming to be cuddled and blessed by Jesus. I think I've been afraid that his formlessness, his pain and his unimportance were poor qualifications for intimate contact with the Master. I am sure I have been wrong. Of course, I would like to be a maturing, organised, competent disciple of Christ, but I have a new awareness that every now and then the child needs to slip past the adult to be taken into the arms of Jesus and simply held for a while. The way forward is the way back. And the way back will take us to the place where we have always wanted to be. For when we look into the eyes of the child that God loves in us, we will see the same reflection of heaven that Jesus saw 2,000 years ago in the eyes of those Jewish children who got their ears clipped by the grown-ups for trying to get near to God. Pray with the children. Dear Jesus, I'm speaking on behalf of some of the children who hide inside your grown-ups every Sunday in church. We've been good for a very long time now, even though we don't really like sitting in rows doing boring things and not being noticed much. When we get excited, we have to hide even further down. When we get sad, we're not allowed to cry out loud because it will disturb other people and they will think bad things about the grown-ups we live in. Jesus... Can you find a way to make them let us out, please? Some of us haven't been cuddled for a very long time now, and we think that's what children need. Speak to them for us, Lord. Bless you. Osman Yusuf Zada grew up in Birmingham as a strict Muslim. 
He went to university, even though his parents were illiterate. Osmond talks to Michael Barclay about his faith and about the community he grew up in. Osman Youssef Sada shot to fame when Beyoncé wore one of his designs to the 2013 Grammy Awards. Lady Gaga, Tandiwe Newton and Taylor Swift are amongst his many other celebrity clients. Osman's an acclaimed artist, designer, filmmaker, writer and curator. You might have been lucky enough to see his spectacular wrapping of the Selfridges building in Birmingham in geometric patterns inspired by Islamic art. It was one of the world's largest ever pieces of public art. Educated at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, Central St. Martins and Cambridge University, Osman grew up in a strictly religious immigrant Pashtun community in Birmingham. His newly published memoir, The Go-Between, is an absolutely fascinating account of growing up in this community and his first steps into the world beyond it while attempting to navigate both racism and family expectations. Osman Yousafzadeh, you've written about the devastating effect of COVID on your family's community in Birmingham. An astonishing 70 people you knew have died, and several members of your immediate family were in intensive care and very nearly didn't survive. My sister was in intensive care, and that was kind of like, really, my sister's not even like, you know, my sister's in her 40s. And um, it was just kind of quite crazy. I mean, just to sort of... I felt that there was this biblical moment just happening where everything just stopped. And I was there, and we just had to say goodbye to her before she just went into intensive care. And I still remember, actually, on on a WhatsApp video call, I mean, it was just like, God, is she going to come out or not? I mean, there's a kind of conversations that, you know, there's many intergenerational families. A lot of these guys actually work in... Healthcare are frontline workers, so they're much more exposed, and then they kind of come bring it back. But I don't know who knows basically why it happened, but I do think there's always kind of the relationship with poverty and kind of disease and those who get affected by it much more. Tragically, your mother, Pawashe, died at the beginning of 2022. She was such a big influence on your life and work, and I wonder what the world must feel like now without her. She's left a huge gap in my life, basically. And, um, you know, it's still quite early days. And, you know, I still kind of, like, go on thinking that I could just call her now. And I can't bear to look at any of my my photo. My iPhone just pops up some of these memories sometimes. And generally, you know, I was kind of like the last few years when I was looking after her. There'd be lots of... We'd take lots of photos together. So the space and the time that we have on this earth and then you're just gone and that mouth doesn't speak anymore. And those relationships just kind of like... I just cut. Well, it's the importance of words that you've chosen in memory of your mother because you've chosen to play as part of the Quran now, haven't you? It's the Al-Mulk, the 67th chapter. Tell us what these words mean. I don't really know what the words mean, but um, it, they're in Arabic. But we're told that you play this regularly 
or you recite it regularly and it keeps you basically in a safe place when you enter the grave and it protects you from the worst of the grave basically because you when you as muslims you believe that when you enter the grave your judgment actually starts so this is an amulet for a safe journey and i would play this to my mum during her coma i don't know i mean i think sometimes in those moments actually you know rituals and religion actually become more and more important أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم تبارك الذي بيده الملك وهو على كل شيء قدير الذي خلق Part of the Al-Mulk, the 67th chapter of the Quran, recited by Omar Hisham and chosen by my guest today, Osman Yusuf Sada, in memory of his mother, Pawashe. Does religion still play an important part in your life? I'm, I'm still a Muslim, but I'm probably much more kind of like Sufi or spiritual and an expanded and, and also kind of one which accepts many other kind of religions and identities. And I, yeah, I still kind of, I still find solace in ritual, in going to spaces of contemplation, which kind of transport you elsewhere. And tell me, Osman, what happened to your sisters? How have their lives turned out? Um, so my older sister, I mean, she... Yeah, I don't know what she'd want me to say. Um, yeah, I mean, she she probably was probably the most affected and didn't really move on from that world. She ended up being divorced and bringing up her children and but the younger two have done really quite well the other two one of them actually became a spin doctor for the labor party running campaigns for the old attorney general and she went to university she left home she ran away and she put herself through university and then my other sister was ended up in a in a marriage which didn't really work out but it also allowed her to start working so she worked her way up from a classroom assistant and now she's a university lecturer doing a PhD on honor-based violence so there's a happy story in all of that adversity when your father died in 2019 3,000 people came to pay their respects looking back how do you feel about him now I mean I think when I was growing up my dad was quite scary but as I grew older I kind of like you know I kind of understood him. He had a quite a, a tragic story himself. You know, his father he was orphaned at the age of 10. I mean, most of the time until adulthood, he was barefooted. He got himself all the way to the other side of the world. 
and built a new life, like someone who can read or write. So I really admire him a lot. I think my journey would be actually very different if it wasn't for him. And he was a man who who could own, he didn't have the codes to be able to kind of integrate either. So they created all a world for themselves. You know, they couldn't kind of read or write. And then there was a world that they didn't really know. That's very interesting because uh, I was just about to observe that the one word that you have used in respect of almost every piece of music is transports, that music transports you, takes you out of yourself. And I wonder if that's true of the final song from Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, the Pakistani singer who was most famous, I suppose, for singing in the Kawali, a form of Sufi devotional music. I mean, this is probably one of the first songs that I really fell in love with. There was a girlfriend who introduced me to this song, and... um, it's beautiful, it's repetitive, and it's also, it's not a Muslim devotional song, even though most of the Kavalis are actually Muslim. The original version is actually a Hindu dedication to Lord Krishna by Mirabai, so a poetress from, I don't know when, probably 15th, 16th century. Very much what I love is these kind of inter-religion and cultures which actually cross different boundaries and, you know, they feed into each other. And I think that was actually really the beauty of the subcontinent for most of its existence, where you had Hinduism and you had Islam and out of that came Sikhism. And there was this whole world which actually just layered and the the colouring of Islam took on different kind of, like, forms as it sort of like spread throughout the world. And it's something that I don't think we should really try and lose in these conversations of purifying what Islam is, because it's a relationship with you, the Almighty.
Matthew Roger is Locum Minister of Pilochry Church of Scotland. Matthew usually has a story near the beginning of the Sunday service to illustrate the theme of the sermon. This week, the story is about generosity. I want to tell you a little story this morning, a story told of a man who was known very well in the community in which he had grown up and in which he lived in adulthood. He was never called by his name. He was called always by a nickname which was attached to him early in life and remained with him all the days that he lived. This man was known as Teaspoon Johnny. Good life, good name, Teaspoon Johnny. And he was called Teaspoon Johnny because people understood that his generosity was doled out in little teaspoonfuls, tiny, tiny amounts. He simply gave the smallest amount that he possibly could get away with. There was no joy for him in his giving. He gave as little as he could that his conscience would allow him. But one day, Teaspoon Johnny found himself in desperate need. No one, no one would help him. So sad was he that no one would help him in his desperate need that he went down on his knees and he asked, indeed he begged God to help him. Please God, help me. And as he was on his knees, it seemed to him that he heard God whisper into his ear and say to him, my son, lend me your teaspoon. And Johnny was shocked. Oh no, God, he cried. It isn't big enough. I need a shovel. And God said, then give me your shovel. And he was stuck. No shovel. We are asked again and again and again to give. And it shouldn't be a difficulty for us because we know and understand again and again and again that God is good, that he gives us what we need. Indeed, God's love meets our needs. God's love is big enough to do so. And as you sit here and look at this table This table and what we shall do later within the service, a reminder to us how great God's love is. It is a reminder that no matter what we do, if we come to God seeking his love, he will meet our need. God so loved the world that he gave his son. 
Ian Rose is producer of Soundwaves Local Radio in Sussex. Ian talks to Leolio about the work of Tierfan. I recently came across these figures, which rather shook me. Right now, 828 million people across the globe are going to bed hungry every night. Now, one organisation that's trying to do something about this is Tier Fund, and Leolio is their strategic project manager in environmental and economic sustainability. Well, Leo, with a title like that, what is Tier Fund doing to tackle the problem? Tier Fund works uh, in 50 countries across the um, globe. So, uh, like Ian rightly pointed out, the food security is quite a severe issue at the moment. So it's the issue in rural area and the issue in urban area. They are quite different. So what we are trying to do under the environmental and economic sustainability is doing three things, basically. It's we want to create green jobs and we want to protect and uh, restore the local environment and then we want to tackle inequality. So these three things, when they work together, uh, will address the uh, food security issue. For example, in rural area, this mainly relates to the pro- uh, agricultural production, the growing things. So if you don't have a, a healthy soil environment, you don't, you don't know the right techniques, and then with the uh, increasing pressure of the climate change, the farmers, mainly smallhold farmers we are working with, we're talking about these families have one or two or three acres of land that support quite a large family, up to eight or nine members. So then we at the organization, working with the local churches and the local partner organizations, try to teach them improved uh, farming techniques like climate uh, smart agricultural techniques Um, how to use water better, how to uh, make compost to enrich the soil fertility, and then introducing some drought-resistant seeds, and also help them to produce uh, not just uh, uh, crops, but also vegetables uh, to intercropping within their limited land, so that they can have not just the staple food, but also have a a wide, wide variety of other vegetables to help address the food security issue. Well, in the urban area, this story is quite different. Given the current economic situation, uh, people find that their wages or their salary they bring home are shrinking rapidly, given the high inflation, or in some countries, hyperinflation. So what we are trying to do uh, in that incidence is to work with the uh, local organizations and the families again to try to be creative. For example, we are teaching people to use the one technique called the rooftop garden. So it's like you use either rooftop or the courtyard where with limited space, use containers or sacks to put soil in there so you can grow your vegetables uh, to um, to provide your family um, some nutritious food because if you were to buy those vegetables outside, uh, it costs you money, then your money is shrinking. So, But by growing these, it really 
ease the burdens of the um, of the of your your finance. People need to make a living, so that they still need the money to buy um, uh, their staple food. So we have started working is to say waste、uh, management project. So where we hire people, local people, to set up the waste collection、uh, process as a business, to hire local people, go out、uh, collect、uh, people's household waste for a fee, and then bring them back, sort out into organic and non-organic, and then you use the organic to make compost, which is one income stream. And then we sort out the non-organic one, particularly、uh, plastic. So it's either sell them back to the local recycling chain, or in in DRC and in Haiti, we are melting those soft plastic bags, which is no use,、uh, even harder for the recycling chain to purchase. We melt them and mix them with sand, and then pour them into mold,、uh, and make them into either. Uh, paving bricks for the for the roads or、uh, bricks to build buildings. So these are some examples we try to address the food security issue in rural area, in urban area. So to both help people to either grow their own or make money to buy. <laughs> From my armchair window on the swallows, before my eyes appearing, foods for breakfasts, dinners, teas, and in between meals, fairing some hay meat and canny eat, some would eat that wanted, but we hay meat and we can eat. And say the Lord be thanked. From my armchair window on this world, I see butter mountains rising, and fish thrown back into the sea, and leaders compromising. And then I see one bowl of rice. A child's eyes staring at me with feeble bones, life never old, reaching out to touch me. Some hay meat and canny eat, some would eat that wanted, but we hay meat and we can eat, and say the Lord be thanked. Just down the road, a million miles, our children they are crying. Too weak to eat, they've got no meat and spend their living dying. But the old divisions, oh, this world exists because we let them. The choice is ours, between need and greed, to help. Or just forget them. Some hate and can't. Some would eat that wanted, 
but we ain't and we can eat. And say the Lord be thanked. And say the Lord be thanked.